I know there's some of you that saw me walking up here and thought, man, we're done with October. When are we going to be done with this guy? But if you've been attending church here for a while, you are probably familiar with the fact that this is a week Pastor Tim always takes a week of his vacation. Uh, and being the creature of habit that he is, he has gone this year uh, as well. So this morning we're going to start out with a little bit of confession time uh, with Pastor Chad. Uh, I've shared this before, but as a brief way of instruct, or, you know, introduction, I kind of thought maybe it would be good to, to throw this back out there. And I apologize to anybody who is older than me, um, because you may, take, you may bristle at my initial mentioning of, of what I'm going to say. I don't intend to be offensive, so please uh, hear me out. Uh, we just came out of our month-long focus on local evangelism, and I think that is a wonderful thing that we do uh, as a church. I think it's a great thing for us to stop and to focus on what it means to, to reach out to our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones and those that don't know Christ. But I must confess, I hate the term soul winning. Or soul winner, or soul winning winners, and those who win souls, and any derivation of the word soul winning. Uh, I realize that this term has been used for years, and maybe even centuries. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, has like a whole series on what it means to be a soul winner. Uh, and, and, and in fact, he says this, he says, Charles Spurgeon says, soul winning is the chief business of the Christian minister. Indeed, it should be the main pursuit of every true believer. And to that, I would say amen. And I think, having studied out his series, because the last time I mentioned this, someone said, yeah, but Chad, what about this? Uh, and so I spent some time studying it out, and I think, uh, having done some research and, and really looked at these things, uh, I think that Spurgeon's desire to raise up soul winners uh, would be completely in line with what I think. He pursued soul winning out of a love for Christ. That was his heart's motivation. He loved Jesus and he wanted others to love Jesus and to know Jesus. So, so his main motivation was that he loved our Lord and Savior. And he pursued soul winning out of a love for, for people, uh, out of a love for those in the world around him that God had placed in his sphere of influence. He wanted them to have eternal life and to know the blessings of, of a relationship with our creator, God. And I believe that he was passionate and motivated by all of the right reasons. The problem is, is that in our culture and in our context, I think that the word just has some of the wrong connotations. I think some of the things that, that are, are wrapped up in that term soul winner is that somehow it's we who win the souls. Somehow it's we who fight that fight and win that battle and, and procure the salvation for that lost soul. And, and I think sometimes when we think of terms like when we're thinking about evangelism and we use terms like soul winning, man, it's just such a discouragement to so many people because they think it depends on their skill. Well, you know what? Maybe my neighbor would actually come to know Christ as their Savior if I was a better soul winner and it's somehow dependent on me. 
And then the converse becomes true is that, you know, if my, I don't have the skills, so my neighbor hasn't been one to Jesus, and so that means that I've lost him, or I'm a loser, or all manner of those kinds of thoughts. And, and I want us to stop and to think about uh, this morning that the reason why I say I don't like the term soul winner is for some of those reasons. But the good news is that God has called every one of us that know Christ as our Savior to be a man, a woman, or a child who is able to tell others about what Christ has done in their life and who has the ability to effectively communicate the gospel to them so that they can go from darkness to light. So that, so that through power of the Holy Spirit at work in them, they can become redeemed children of God, adopted as sons and daughters into the kingdom. I wholeheartedly believe that God wants us to do that. And I think that, that if Spurgeon lived today, I'm not sure he would love the term soul winner. So that's confession time with Pastor Chad. Pastor Chad disagrees with Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. And, uh, and if you expect my resignation, go ahead and send those emails. I understand. I know that there's at least uh, one or two that will probably contact me. But uh, I promise I'm not, I'm not saying that in, a, in the sense that I don't believe we should be reaching out. In fact, this morning, we are going to look at what is our heart's motivation for reaching out. This uh, passage of scripture was one that I contemplated using uh, for local evangelism month. Uh, but then when I decided on our other theme of disciples making disciples in everyday lives, I thought, you know what? I preach two weeks after local evangelism, and this will be a great opportunity for a follow-up on, all right, if that's what we're supposed to be doing, and if, and if 1 Corinthians 1.11, be imitators of me uh, as I am of Christ, and, and we want to set that into our uh, vocabulary and build and weave that into our everyday lives and to who we are, then this passage of Scripture can, can really highlight what our motivation is. So open your Bibles with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to look at our motives as a disciple of Christ, who should be making disciples in our everyday lives. But the characteristics that we're going to look at, the good news is that, you know, there, there are uh, some of us here that um, have other roles and responsibilities in life other than just being an evangelist, right? There, there's, all of us wear many hats each and every day. The good news is that the character qualities that we're going to look at today, not only will they help us in our evangelism, they will help us in ministry, they will help us in service, they will help us as a father, as a son, as a mother, as a daughter, as an employee, as an employer. These characteristics will help us to grow in godliness in our relationship with Christ. They will help us in every aspect of our lives. And so we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But I just wanted to quickly sum up the beginning uh, of uh, the second chapter uh, of Thessalonians. You know, Paul is kind of looking at his ministry there to the Thessalonians, and he sums it all up with one simple phrase. So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. And so that phrase is kind of at the heart of everything that we're going to look at 
this morning in verses 5 through 12. Paul says that they were speaking to the Thessalonians as, as men who were desiring to please God and not men. And so these motives were their efforts through the power of the Holy Spirit working in them to live a life that was pleasing to God as they served, as they ministered, as they preached, and as they proclaimed the good news uh, of Jesus Christ. So let's read together uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a mother, <clears throat> like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the first thing that we're going to look at this morning is what Paul tells us, the things that we are not. We're going to look at what we aren't. And the first character quality that Paul brings out for us as he's laying out their minister, ministry to the Thessalonians, the first things that, that he says that they weren't is he says we weren't misleading. Verse 5 starts out by saying, for we never came with words of flattery. Now, flattery in our culture and context takes on a lot of different meanings. And, and most, of the, most of the time we think of it like, uh, uh, of brown nosing or sucking up or, or something along those lines. In my mind, being of a certain age and demographic, I think of the Eddie Haskell, right? The, the one who's kind of a little bit of a troublemaker, but would always have these nice and kind words to say uh, to, to butter up uh, the beaver's mother. That, that's kind of what we think of uh, with flattery. But flattery isn't just telling somebody true things to try to get favor, earn favor with them. In, in the context of what this term that's translated flattery means, it, it literally means there's an attempt to deceive, an attempt to kind of uh, butter up and to procure favor with, with kind of half-truths and lies. It, it, at the heart of this word, there's an insincerity to the things that are being said. And I want us to understand and to know and to boldly proclaim right up front that the gospel should never be preached in a way that will earn favor with man by using deceptive words. You know, and, and, and we see this a lot in our world where people, people are trying to tone down the wording of the gospel in an attempt to make it more palatable and acceptable to people. Don't get me wrong, we need to preach the gospel in a way that people can understand clearly the gospel message. But we can't use flattery or deception to kind of tweak and to change the meaning of the gospel. And what I mean by that is there are terms in the gospel that are 
ultimately cannot be changed. We cannot change sin. We can't take sin out of the gospel and expect to lead, lead people to Christ. So we can't stop talking about sin in an attempt to reach others with the message of the gospel. Because if there is no sin, then we don't need a savior. Because then if there's no sin, then we're holy and righteous and blameless on our own. But it's not true. We all know that we are sinners. So flattery compromises the gospel in an attempt usually to, to gain an ear, to gain a hearing, or to gain favor with someone. And quite frankly, as Christians, sometimes we'll present the gospel in a way that makes our own ego or other Christians around us content. Oh man, did you see Chad? Man, he really, he really went after those folks with the gospel. He really, he really gave it to them. Well, in, in a way, if, if I'm trying to procure, procure favor with other Christians instead of God, and for them to say, oh, look at how good he is at evangelism or all those kinds of things, in a way, I'm using this term flattery. I'm trying to gain favor in the eyes of men through, through insincere and deceitful means and methods. So, so we must be men and women of the truth. We must take a stand on what scripture says, and we must proclaim the whole truth of scripture. That's how we preach. That's how we share. That's how we see men and women come to know Christ. It's how we serve. It's how we live our lives. We are supposed to live our lives in compliance to God's word, to his truth. And flattery is trying to accomplish our own goals, our own, through our own methods, instead of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. So, so using, not using flattery, being a man or a woman who's committed to the truth and not using flattery, sometimes means that we have to say hard things to people. We're going to kind of come back to that in a little bit, but I just kind of want that ruminating in your mind a little bit. But verse 5 continues for us, and it says, We never came with words of flattery, nor with a pretext of greed. The second thing I want us to understand is, as a, as a believer in Christ leading others to Christ, we are not to be greedy. No offense to anyone in here who is a salesman of any kind. Man, I'm really offending people this morning. But I think we've all had those experiences with that kind of a salesman, right? The one who is willing to say anything and do anything to get the sale, and he has no concern for your well-being. He only has a concern for his bottom dollar and, and lining his pocketbook at the end of the day. Early in our marriage, when Julie and I didn't really have money to do such things, I had a team that qualified to go down to the all-world championships of the Gus Macker tournaments. So we had to go down to Florida, and we were newlyweds, and none of my friends that were on my team had any money. And we all hopped in a vehicle, drove down to Florida, uh, and competed in this tournament. And while we were down there, we are like, hey, you know, we can go and listen to this sales pitch and have this wonderful, fun uh, day in one of the parks down there for practically nothing. And so we're, we did that. And that salesman that put us through that pitch, man, he... He had it down. He had all of the words that he wanted to say to try to convince us that this is exactly what we need, right? This is what you need in your life. This will make you happy and content. This, he had all of those things. And it wasn't until we told him that we only made our way down to Florida on vacation by saving pop cans and pop bottles from our basement that, that he was like, 
maybe this is not the kind of people that I'm supposed to be targeting. And he turned his attention to my friends who had actually a little bit more money than us. But that kind of salesman, it, it just felt, you kind of feel dirty when you leave that, that sales pitch. And you kind of feel like, wow, I feel like I've been pressured and weaseled into, into something. This is the context of, of, of the greed that we can't have as gospel messengers of the truth. You and I can't be trying to, to be greedy. We can't minister in Christ if our whole purpose and our sole uh, idea is to have gain from it. Here at First Baptist Church, uh, the Lord has really blessed us. We have an annual budget that's bigger than many small companies, some medium-sized companies, and we use that money to, to perform a lot of different ministries and to, to try to make an impact in, our, in uh, our lives and the life of those in this community. And God has really blessed us. But you don't often hear us up here begging for you to, to contribute. You, you'll, you'll rarely ever hear us even mentioning money. And it's because we realize that God is the one who provides. He uses our people, his flock, this congregation, those who he has called to be part of First Baptist Church to accomplish what he wants us to do here. And we fully believe that if God wants us to do something, he will provide the funds to do it. If we feel that he has called us to do something, we know that he will provide the funds for us to do it. So we don't do fundraising. I, I am so thankful that as a youth pastor, I don't have to have uh, baked sales and spaghetti dinners and car washes and all the other things because we have at the heart of what we believe is that money is not our goal. What is our goal is glorifying God. And if there's ministry he wants us to perform, we believe he's going to provide for that. And he uses all of us as we contribute to this local body, to this church, to accomplish that task. And it's not about money. And then that's the, that's the beautiful outpouring of not being greedy is that when, when it's not about money, we don't have to be greedy and we can give sacrificially and we can, we can do all of the things that, that God would want us to do. We don't have to try to co coerce you to give us your seed money, right? And if you'll just plant this seed of $1,000 right now, and I know you're in debt, but if you plant this seed, God will take care of that $80,000 you have. We, we don't use those coercive tactics, because that's not what we believe God has called us to in Scripture. He wants us to focus on serving him, and he will provide all that we need to do that. It's about a disciple's heart and a disciple's motives. And God does not want his people. Paul says we were not greedy. We did not seek anything from you in a false pretext, in a false context, trying to get your money. And in verse 6, Paul continues in the same theme of all of those things that we are not. He says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. So the third thing we are not, we are not glory hounds. It does not matter how God gets the praise or who he uses to get that praise. You know, when someone comes to know Christ as their Savior through our Beacon of Hope ministry, yes, we praise the Lord for those that are working there, but we praise the Lord. And it's not like we go, oh man, I wish, I wish that I would have been the one to lead them to Christ. No, the beauty is they've come to Christ. 
When a young child trusts Christ as Savior at, at vacation Bible school, we shouldn't be going, oh man, I, I wish I'd have been the one to do that. But the beauty is, is if, is if you do have that desire, and it's not for your own glory, but for God's glory, then perhaps he's using that desire to, to stir up in you a desire to get involved and to serve and to participate and to jump in. If, if you look around you and you go, man, I, I see people coming to know Christ in this ministry and that ministry, and I, man, I, I've not been any part of that. Well, good news. God can use you to be part of that ministry. He could call you to serve. But it's not about you, and it's not about that specific ministry. It's about God and his glory. And quite frankly, if there was anybody who could boast, it would be the Apostle Paul. I, you know, when people are often interviewed, famous people on TV and whatnot, one of the questions that they're asked is, you know, if you could have dinner with anybody, or you could spend an evening... Uh, just chatting with anybody, past, present, or future, who would it be? Well, my go-to thought would be, well, I'd, I'd want it to be Jesus. But the reality is I have fellowship with Jesus, and I have his word, and I have all, all that I think he needs. We, he feels we need to know about him in Scripture. And so for me, my real answer would be I'd want to meet with the, the Apostle Paul. I would just want to know how he handled all of these intricate things and how he lived among these people and preached the good news to them, but, but did it in such a way that he was trying to deflect glory from himself. I mean, he could have boasted. In fact, he lays this out for us in Philippians 3, verses 3 through 8, a passage that many of us are familiar with. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, Paul, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul gives us the example of what it means to have all the rights to boast, but to not be a glory hound. And, and if he's, he's preaching and teaching these words, he was living these words out among the, Thessalon, among the Thessalonians. He was, was in the strength that the Lord provided, applying the gospel first and foremost to his life, and living that out in a way that pointed the glory and the praise to God for what he has done. And along with not being a glory hound is another thing that we should not be. And that is we should not be demanding. You see, he says, nor did we see glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Too often, even as believers, we, we demand the respect that comes with our position, whatever that position might be. Oftentimes, I'll have either parents or kids say, what would you like my child to call you? And quite frankly, I usually say something along the lines of, well, I don't care if they call me Chad or Pastor Chad or, or Pastor Knexney or Mr. Knexney or... Or as long as they're respectful, I don't care what they call me. But I want them to call me 
whatever their parents have decided they should call me. But it's not that I feel like I need to be elevated to, to any kind of a position or a place or, or anything like that. And Paul demonstrates that here. He says, you know, we are apostles, but we don't use that position that we have, that God has given us, we don't use that position so that we can demand praise, so that we can demand things. Paul saw being an apostle not as a privilege, or he saw it, he saw it as a privilege, not a response. Paul saw being an apostle as a responsibility and a privilege given to him, not something that he had earned, and so he should not get the praise and the glory for it. We shouldn't serve Christ to, glory, to bring glory to us. We should live to have our lives point to the only one who is worthy of our praise. Jesus Christ is the only one worth praise. He is the only one worth serving. In fact, the only thing that qualifies anyone in this room and anyone on the face of this earth to be a, a disciple of Jesus and a proclaimer of his good news is the fact that we're a wretched sinner. That's the only thing that qualifies us. We need to know that I am a sinner saved by the grace of God and that is the only thing that qualifies me to be a messenger of the Savior. Our message is not that I'm worthy, not that you are worthy, not that any of us are worthy, but Jesus is. And God chose by his grace and his mercy to save me even though I wasn't worthy. And the good news is, is that that message is what you, God wants us to proclaim to others, that they can be saved too, that they can know the forgiveness and the redemption that comes along with the gospel and understanding that truth. And how could that possibly bring me praise? It doesn't. It puts the praise right where it belongs on God himself. And so we see some things from the Apostle Paul that the things that we are not. But he also gives us some insight into the things that we are. If we're not supposed to be these things, and, and Paul's always very helpful. He always tells us what to put off and what to put on, and this is the darkness and this is the light. He helps us to make these comparisons in our lives so that we can understand what it is that, that God truly wants from us. And the first thing that I want to point out from our text is that we are called to be gentle. We read, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Here we're told that Paul and his associates were, were gentle among you, like a nursing mother. And I, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I think of Paul, I don't think of gentle and nursing mother. and Those are not the terms that come to mind. But we're going to see later that he, 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 he's basically challenging them. And you can affirm that this is actually how we were among you. And so I think that's important for us to kind of step back and to, to look at here. What, what does he mean by, by, by this context? And, and I think that he, he's challenging us that we should have a selfless love and devotion for the people that we are serving. You know, uh, when, when I was a single person, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with my selfishness. I'm kind of having some victory over it. And then I got married, and I realized just how selfish I really was still. And I thought, hey, you know, I'm finally starting to have a handle on this selfishness thing. And then I had a child. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness, I thought I had a handle on this selfishness thing. And, 
And, and, and then you, you start to get a handle on that and you go, oh, wait, I still need to be a husband. And, and I still, we're always dealing with selfishness in our own lives. But being a parent is one of the areas that God uses the most to help us to realize we need to set aside ourselves and to live for someone else. And I think that's the perfect picture here. We have a nursing mother who is devoted to caring for her child. There's no example of selfless love that is better, in my mind, than this image of a nursing mother. But it's important to note that, that the gentleness that Paul is speaking of here, uh, it's not in contrast all the way back to the beginning with flattery and some of those kinds of things. It's a contrast to his apostleship. It's a contrast to, to the fact that he held a position of great authority and should be a position of great praise. And he says, but I, I, when I was among you, I was a servant and gentle, like a nursing mother. And when we are ministering in the name of Christ, we are always to be the balance of gentleness and proclamation. Gentleness and proclamation. I'm an apostle, but I was gentle among you like a nursing mother. And Paul was an example of this. But Jesus was our perfect example of this. When Jesus was at the well with a Samaritan woman who, who had had many husbands and had many uh, exchanges with men in her day, in John 4, verses 16 through 18, we hear this. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have and the one you now have is not your husband. So, so Jesus, somehow, because he is our perfect example, was able to confront this woman with a really hard truth. These are the kinds of hard things that sometimes we have to confront in our world. But Jesus gives us this example of, yes, you can confront sin, but you can love and you can have compassion and you can be gentle and you can confront sin in such a way that draws people closer to God instead of, of, of seeing the door closed on them and feeling excluded from the love of God. You and I, as we proclaim the good news of Christ, have to be gentle. But Paul didn't stop at reminding us that we have to be gentle he continues to describe his heart's motivation by saying, so being affectionately desirous of you. And so that means we also have to be loving. We have to be gentle, and we have to be loving. Verse 8 is, is, is one of those difficult verses to translate, affectionately desirous of you. That is why we ministered among you, because you had become very dear to us, he continues on in saying, Men, I think there's two things that are really important for us to learn here. One is that it is important to communicate our love to others. And two, when you use words like affectionately desirous, it loses its effect. If any of you go home after church today and say to your wife, Honey, I am so affectionately desirous of you. I'm not sure it's going to have the desired response that you're looking for. So... So what is it that Paul really is saying here? And so translation issues aside, what Paul is trying to communicate is the depth of love that he had for the Thessalonians. And, and maybe aff affectionately desirous in the English language doesn't translate that well. 
But this was Paul's way of saying, my heart overflows with love for you, people of Thessalonica. And I love you. And I love my Savior. And so how did that love affect Paul when he was with the Thessalonians? It tells us that because of their love for them, that they were ready to share. You see, that should be our motivation. Out of a heart overflowing with love, we should be ready to share. But in our hearts, we should set apart Christ as Lord. We should love Jesus. And then always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Giving that reason to those around us and doing so with gentleness and respect. We read that in 1 Peter 3.15 and, 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 and that's just another way that's peter's way of telling us the same thing that paul is saying here we need to be gentle we need to be loving but we need to be ready to share and what does it mean to be ready to share it means that we're not just ready to share the gospel although that is part of it first paul tells them that he shared the gospel but not only the gospel but also our own selves they shared their lives when we want to reach people for christ we need to be ready to share the gospel and ready to share our lives. It's not just that they share the gospel or just that they share their lives with people. It's a combination of the two of those things coming together beautifully. That's a picture of love shared with them. And as Paul continues in verse 9, he, he continues to help us to see what does it mean to serve others? What does it mean to have the right motivation? We see that we are to be hard working for you remember brothers. Our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now this, man, this is how we like to think of love. Toil and labor and, and not being a burden and doing those things that communicate love. And that's, that's awesome because that's also what Scripture tells us. So we have to be gentle and we have to be loving. And part of that love means serving by working hard and laboring and toiling night and day and not wanting to be a burden. But it's so important, that next phrase. It's oh so important. It's the key to our entire passage. While we proclaim the gospel to you. All of these things are our heart's motivation, but we have to proclaim the gospel. While we're proclaiming the gospel, we're trying to manifest all of these things that are important. And sometimes in our culture, busyness can get in the way of proclamation. Sometimes in our culture, we can be so caught up in doing things that we forget that we need to proclaim the good news. We get so caught up in working hard and toiling that we don't take the time to share. But because Paul and his associates lived the way that, that we're looking at here, because they lived that way, that gave them a door for the gospel. And that means, ultimately, that their lives were, our last one, above reproach. You see, it says that you are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you as believers. And I think that it's important to remind ourselves at this point that Paul was a man just like us. He had sin issues that he had to deal with just like us. It's not that he was perfect, holy, and blameless on this earth. But what he was saying is as far as it depends on me, he was at peace with all men. As far as it was up to him, he was, he was holy and blameless in their eyes. He had not wronged anyone. He had not been greedy. He had, he had had the right heart's motivation. And that is 
where he landed. He had worked out being balanced in his life, being both exhorting and encouraging and, and come to a point in his life where he was not flattering but gentle and showing love. He had worked out all of those things in his desire to present the gospel. So our last thoughts that I want us to think about here this morning, though, as we're wrapping up this text is, for you and I, what does this look like? Well, I say for one thing, you and I need some accountability. Paul says, you are witnesses. He says to the people he was trying to reach out to, you are a witness. In essence, he's saying, if I wasn't this, tell me. Because I want to live in a way that is pleasing to God. We are accountable to the people that God has placed in our life. We are accountable to the people that God has placed in our sphere of influence. And so I need to evaluate. Am I acting gently, loving? Am I affectionately desirous toward them? Am I kind? Am I presenting the truth? Am I actually proclaiming the good news? Am I doing the things that God has called me to do? If you ask people in your life, would they say you are gentle or loving? Are you ready to share? Or more importantly, are you all of these things? Because sometimes it's easy for me to focus on one or the other. But if I ask people around me, am I, in, am I trying to do all of these things? Am I being encouraging while exhorting? Because we are accountable to the people that God has placed in our lives. God puts them there for a reason. They're watching us. And the other side of that coin is that, that God is watching us as well. God is watching us too. Ultimately, our accountability is to God. And we have to walk in a manner worthy of his name. He is the one who knows all and sees all that we are trying to do for him. And when we try to wrap all this up in a neat little bow at the end of our passage of Scripture, I think it's important for us to recognize that part of our accountability is that we are a family. This local body of believers God has called together to be a family. And in this context of what is our heart's motivation, we see terms like gentle like a mother, like a father with his children. He calls the Thessalonians brothers. We need to encourage one another to live like this. There's accountability in having the bond of Christ and growing together as a church and having the same goals and having the same desires. And certainly not, not all of us are, are called to do each and everything but that's what the beauty of the body of Christ. When we see someone who is serving, we can come alongside and, and help them so that they can do the things that God has called them to do. But this is the opposite of everything that the world tries to tell us. The world tries to tell us, no, we have to, we have to seek praise for ourselves, and we have to do the things which are going to get you ahead in life. And, and, and in the context of this family, this body of believers that God has called you to be a part of, he is saying, I want you to live with these character, character qualities, ready to share, gentle, encouraging, loving, and not these, not greedy, not a glory hound, not, not misleading, not seeking wrong kinds of gain. And when we do that, we will bring glory and honor to our king. Unfortunately, we've all seen ministries that don't 
function according to these concepts and these motivations that we see in the word. We've seen ministry done wrong. And I think that as a family of God, we here at First Baptist Church need to challenge one another. We need to support one another. And we need to be asking questions like, well, is this really what your life looks like? You need to ask me, is this what my life looks like? Is this what our ministries in our church really look like? If not, then we need to start encouraging and exhorting one another and laboring toward that end. As Paul ends, he says, for the glory of Christ. So let's challenge one another, as Paul so puts it, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. God is at work. And it's not for our glory, but for his. And he wants us to be a part of it. And that should be our heart's motivation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have done so much for us. And yet, you are not done with us. You have called us to impact the world around us. Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us here this morning that know Christ as our Savior, to examine our heart's motives. Are we living in a way that truly brings honor and glory to you, or are we, in subtle, small ways, trying to bring glory and gain to ourselves? Father, if that's the case, help us to repent, because we want your name to be glorified. Father, help us to be that family that spoke of here. Help us to be nurturing like mothers, hardworking like fathers, exhorting and, and challenging while also encouraging and loving. Help us to do these things so that your name will be praised right here where you've placed us, in St. John's, in DeWitt, and all of Clinton County, and all of these surrounding areas where you have placed us to live and to work. May you receive praise by how we live for you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.